You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Monica Bay. And I'm Bob Ambrogi. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore new legal technology and the people behind the tech. Here on Law Technology Now. Welcome to Law Technology Now. This is Bob Ambrogi. I'm your host. I'm the author of the blog Law Sites, uh, and I'm also now writing a column for the Above the Law blog called This Week in Legal Technology. We're very happy to have as our guest today David Perla. David is president of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg BNA's legal division. David, welcome to Law Technology Now. Thanks for having me, Bob. Great to be here. Very happy to have you. I was actually looking back through uh, preparing for this show and looking back through the email chain and actually kind of took us a while to get you on the show. So I'm very happy that we're finally uh, able to do that. We're going to talk later in this interview about something new that is being rolled out in Bloomberg Law. So I hope our listeners will stay tuned to hear more about that. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you more uh, generally about your company and about you. So to kick it off, could you just explain for our listeners the mission of Bloomberg BNA's legal division and, and what, what that includes, what's under that umbrella? Sure. Bloomberg BNA's legal division is a, is a part of Bloomberg BNA, which itself is a subsidiary of Bloomberg. Most of our listeners uh, probably know BNA from its legacy as, as one of the most well-known legal publishers. Uh, today, the legal division not only has the original and evolved BNA assets, but also has Bloomberg Law, which was a legal information and technology platform uh, built by Bloomberg prior to the merger between Bloomberg Law and, and Bloomberg BNA. The mission of what we're doing in the legal division is really to help lawyers and legal professionals serve their clients better and serve their clients faster and ultimately to help lawyers and to help the underlying clients of lawyers grow their businesses, to help them be better counselors to their clients, and to help them become more profitable. So for our law firm clients, we, we think you know, our mission is really to help them to grow and to advise and, and to profit. Uh, and for our in-house clients, it's really to help them make their corporations grow and profit and to counsel them in ways that are unique to in-house departments. And of course, for all our other clients, you know, government, academia, nonprofit consultancies, um, to really ultimately help them better serve their clients to help their clients grow optimally. And David, you came aboard as president two years ago. For the benefit of our listeners who, who may not know you, give us an overview of your career prior to joining Bloomberg. Sure. I started my career as a lawyer in New York City, where I am today, spent almost five years at one of the large Manhattan law firms. I then went in-house for five and a half years, ultimately becoming head of business and legal affairs at at Monster.com. So the first 10 years of my career were evenly split between being 
a provider of legal services at a large law firm and then uh, an in-house counsel at, at a public company and a subsidiary of a public company that relied heavily on large law firms and also was, was in the technology business. I then was the co-founder and, and co-CEO of a legal outsourcing company called Pangea3. Uh, from 2004 until 2012, in 2010, Pangea3 was acquired by one of the large information providers, and I stayed an additional two years integrating that business and then left it in the end of 2012 uh, and then was recruited in early 2014 to join Bloomberg to lead the legal division in Bloomberg Law. So I've really sat on kind of three different areas prior to Bloomberg uh, within the legal ecosystem, you know, law firm provider, the GC slash law firm consumer, and then provider into the legal system to law firms, to in-house departments, and to legal consultancies. That was our client base. Most of that on the services end. So the piece that's a little unique for me is that I don't come from the information world or the, or the publishing world, but I have chops on the client side and, and certainly in the technology side of the business. Uh, it, of course, you don't you don't mention the name of that big information publisher that acquired Pangea Three, but uh, I will. It was Thomson Reuters, and uh, I think it was something like a hundred million dollars they paid for it. Is that is that in the ballpark? It's it's in the ballpark. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and you know, I mean, Pangea Three was really a, a pioneering company uh, in its time, and, and probably still is in a lot of ways. Um, you know what you've recited is a, a very impressive and accomplished background. But it, as you say, you, you didn't really have a background in, in legal publishing or research. So, you know, you just touched on this, but maybe you could expand a little bit more on what it is about your background that uh, that you bring to, to Bloomberg BNA. What What is it, uh, even though you weren't in publishing, uh, that makes you uh, the right person to be the president uh, of the legal division? Sure. So I think it actually speaks volumes about Bloomberg BNA and Bloomberg as an organization. I'm I'm not unique in this organization being someone who leads part of the the group, but doesn't necessarily come out of uh, exactly the products we build or or exactly the the person you would envision in the role. So I think as I think about both Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg BNA. They are the types of organizations that very much look for people who can think differently about the problems that our clients are facing. So if you go all the way up to Mike Bloomberg, he'll say, don't ask the clients the solutions they want, figure out the problems they have and anticipate what things will solve those problems. So if you think about my background, Bob, having consumed legal services, having um, delivered legal services you know, in a, a very innovative, some, some would argue disruptive way, and having been a provider from a large law firm, I, I, I'm intimately familiar with what goes on at large law firms, at, at large corporate legal departments, and at other providers, which I think is a very, if I may say so, a Bloomberg and a, and a Bloomberg BNA way of looking at it. The products we build, we clearly have the subject matter expertise in those, but we don't think in order to, in order to solve our clients' problems, we do think we need people who bring different perspectives. You know, so uh, some of what we'll talk about technologically, uh, part of the reasons we were able to do that is we weren't hamstrung by thinking through solutions in a legacy way. So in, in many respects, knowing exactly how it's been done in the past is an impediment to doing something differently. 
Um, so you know, if I can if I can bastardize, you know, what Henry Ford used to say, we didn't set out many years ago when Bloomberg Law was formed to kind of build a faster horse and buggy. They set out to solve problems that lawyers had and said, how do we do that as if we were starting from a, a clean slate? And so I think my background serves the business well, but but there are many, many dozens of leaders here who have similar backgrounds. They have an expertise in something that helps us solve the problem, even if they're not in legal publishing or they're not exactly what you'd expect to see in that leadership role. Who are those clients whose problems you're trying to solve? Do you skew toward large law firms and and corporate, or do you span the legal market? We span the legal market. It's, It's a very good question, but we, you know, say we're more concentrated just for historical reasons from Bloomberg BNA and from Bloomberg Law. We are a little bit more concentrated in law firms and in and in corporations as opposed to other areas. That concentration is changing now that we've turned our focus to all segments in the legal market. So we we certainly have been known for many decades on the BNA side of the house across law firms of all sizes, the smallest law firms, the largest, and across legal departments, uh, across tax departments. But uh, increasingly, you know, we're known in the government, we're known in nonprofit, we're known in consulting and and academia. You know, today we are in uh, all but maybe one handful of law schools are Bloomberg Law clients. So, you know, of the 200-ish law schools, we're basically in all of them. Uh, and that's a product of the focus we took to the market, which is to say, you know, where, where the law students go, so goes Bloomberg Law. So we're going to focus on that. Legacy of Bloomberg BNA was was to publish in particular content areas that we became very well known for. Once Bloomberg Law became part of it, we really were able to expand our horizons and our client base. And we've done that. So since you've come aboard in the last couple of years, What's changed? What, how, has the mission changed at all? Have you, in terms of uh, your analogy to uh, you know, looking to how you can solve the problems, uh, what problems are you seeing and, and how have you shifted in any way to try and address those? I would say the method has changed, but the mission has not. And our ability to articulate that mission and to thoughtfully communicate that mission to a broader set of, of clients and prospective clients has gotten better. Um, not just since I've arrived, I would say, you know, in the, in the last number of, of years, you know, three years, four years, five years, but fundamentally the mission that, that Bloomberg Law has always had, and I think BNA always had before it became part of Bloomberg, was to help lawyers and legal practitioners do what they do to do it better, to do it faster. The means by which we help them has gotten much better. Our ability to use technology to do that, as opposed to merely using information, and our ability to make that information dynamic and discoverable, searchable, and to make that information interrelate. So to let lawyers and and legal professionals look at information in different ways, you know, across multiple axes has really improved radically over the last, let's say, five years since we've integrated the legacy of Bloomberg BNA, which was world-class editorial content and world-class legal news into Bloomberg Law, which was really world-class legal technology and world-class data analytics. 
So the way in which we've done that for clients has changed dramatically. When you, t- I mean, this is, I think we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, this growth in information and what it's, what it means and what it's meant to you as a company. But when we're talking about information here, are you talking, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the information that you as a company are, are producing or are you talking about uh, information in a broader sense? Definitely information in a broader sense. So lawyers today have access to infinitely more information than they've, than they've had in the past. Uh, certainly, you know, when I stopped formally practicing in 2004, the amount of information that a lawyer gets on a daily basis is, is exponentially larger. So when we think about information, we include that. Some of what we make available can be obtained elsewhere. Some cannot. It's what we would deem proprietary. And some of what we produce, even on the information side, is analytic or editorial in nature. It's, there's expertise layered onto it. With all of that information, our ability to help professionals synthesize it, help that information interrelate, help them do it faster, um, have more confidence in the information and discover the information in a more efficient way has greatly improved. So irrespective of whether we produce the underlying information or someone else does, we think we've meaningfully improved the ability of, of lawyers and legal professionals to get at what they need, but also to think about it differently. I'll give you an example which is something I think we probably won't end up touching on, but we have a a privacy and data security product out today which approached that very difficult and complicated and confusing market in a different way. Uh, And we, we went out to the market and we asked the market what the problem was. And the way we approached the information was it really leads with current awareness, but it's done from the very get-go in a heat map type way. So today's problem is for any privacy officer or, or head of privacy in the legal department is figuring out what laws and regs apply on almost a daily basis when it's changing around the world, what might apply, how do those interrelate, what are the risks of a foot fault, what are the risks of a serious fault or, or a flagrant violation, and what are the means by which someone can comply and what are those costs? My suspicion, Bob, is that's going to change in three to five years when the law settles out and the regs settle out, the needs of professionals in privacy and data security will, will no longer be merely about knowing what those rules are and how to comply with them, but will evolve to something else. I, I suspect compliance will become a meaningfully more important part of that, and the law will be more knowable. Just like today, if you think about very mature bodies of law, the, the securities rule, right, 33 Act, 34 Act, very well understood by very large groups of lawyers, but how to comply with it, how to practice in it becomes very, very important on a daily basis. So the tools we produce for a securities lawyer, our Edgar tools or corporate transactional tools, are geared vastly less around the changes in the law and the current awareness than they are in enforcement and the regulatory regime and the practice itself. That's how we think about when I say we're trying to solve the problem. The problem is different depending on what the practice is. Right. Now, we're here to, in part to talk about something that you're, I guess, about to roll out or in the process of rolling out, which uh, I've been told is going to be uh, an improvement on the annotated code. So uh, why don't you set the stage for us? What are you talking about here? So it's called Smart Code, and it is a technological solution to 
what is traditionally known as annotated code. So like many things at Bloomberg, we generally approach very scaled problems and growing problems in a technology way first and in an editorial or curated human way second. And I think that's different from some of the other information providers. And smart code is, is one of the sort of five, six, seven ways we're really using technology first to attack how to annotate code, particularly within the, the body of federal case law. So how does that work? Explain to me sure. how smart code works. So it's probably helpful to talk about traditional annotated code. You know, for our listeners who don't, don't know much about annotated code, uh, when a court issues a case, they will often make a reference to uh, an, an underlying statute, right? The law um, that is that on which the case is based, or, or the laws, or any laws that are otherwise referenced by it, and that's traditionally known as the code or the code site. You know what annotated code then does is, when a reader is looking at the code, and the, and the bigger information providers all have versions of annotated code. When you're looking at a code section, it, it will give an annotation to case law that interprets that code section or reads on that code section. And then the lawyer can go read that case to determine, you know, if it's relevant to what they're reading the code for. So that's traditional annotated code. Historically, the way that's been done is um, all of the major providers, when we review cases, um, whether they're done technologically or, or with editors or both, very easy to find the code citation in a case. So it's not hard to find a reference to a law in an underlying case issued by a court. Traditionally, what's been done is when that site is found, an editor will read it and would then write up some type of an annotation. And some other editor would have to make a choice and say, within the code that's being cited, where should we put this annotation? Should it show up? Because there's only room for so many annotations. Is this one important? Does it change some other prior annotation? Okay, so it's all done manually. We've developed a technology solution to do all of that in an automated way to find the reference, to determine whether the reference is important or not important, or is it strong or moderate or weak as a reference to a particular code section, and then to let the reader, let the lawyer, when they're looking at that section of the code, to see as few or as many of these as they want, and also to filter them, because it's all technology-based and it's all based on tags that are put in the, in the case, to do the filter in real time once the annotations show up in the code. So it's really a radical departure from what's out there on other platforms. So as, I mean, as you say, this has traditionally been done uh, by human editors. We all have the sort of vision of uh, big room out in uh, Egan, Minnesota or somewhere where, where uh, bunches of, of lawyers are, are sitting in cubicles uh, going through these things and creating annotations. How does an algorithmic, I guess, annotation compare to a human annotation? Sure. So I think if you start with what a human does is you find a reference to a code in a case. Okay. So we'll just we'll, let's just take a, a large one. If you, if you look at all the various cases referencing the Affordable Care Act, you will see references to the actual statute uh, and the regulations that implement the rules under the statute. Someone would then read, would go into those cases all the way up, you know, each of the federal cases on that and any, any state case that references the federal code on it, 
and all the way up to the Supreme Court cases that have litigated the ACA and would read them and determine what the reference means and when would go back to that section of the code and someone would have to determine, okay, is that annotation overruling a different annotation? Does it moot a different annotation? And should I remove one because there's only so many annotations one can manage on top of a code section? We do it a little differently. We have an algorithm that finds those citations. That's easy, right? So we know that a court has referenced the Affordable Care Act or the regulations under the Affordable Care Act. First thing is it's much faster um, because we're running a script to go find that. The moment that the case gets through our citator and we're finding all the code sections, it immediately can hit our code algorithm. We then have another algorithm that starts to look at the citation and say, do we think that's a strong citation, a moderate citation, a weak citation? We actually have five rankings. And then we have a, an algorithm, it's what's called a cascade, that determines whether it's a one through five ranking, which then we, we bucket those into whether those would be strong, moderate, or weak. And in doing that, the actual computer script looks for certain things to determine strength or weakness of that reference or citation. And then when we render the annotation to the reader, we stack rank it for that person. They can unstack it, but the expectation is that readers want the strongest reference first. There may be readers looking for weaker references, but that are on particular topics or particular filters. So the assumption is people just want strength, but you can then filter by keyword, you can filter by jurisdiction, so that there's almost a limited, unlimited number of citations we could leave there because they're filterable. We're, we're letting you make the choice, but the default being strength of discussion as opposed to just citing a statute once without that statute really being implicated or, or impacted by the case. So I think what's interesting about doing this is obviously we're relying on computer code and we test it. We know our way around. I think you know, Bloomberg widely considered one of the global leaders in data analytics and ability to use code to manipulate data. But there's a few results that we think are instrumental here for lawyers on top of the quality side. So we do think, by the way, taking out the objectivity of an editor, you know, sitting somewhere uh, who can have an off day or an on day or who may or may not know the subject matter as well in very dense material. We think that in itself is a good thing. But if you think about what technology historically does across any set of data, there are three things here that we think are really meaningfully improved over doing this in an editorial manner. And I'll just lay them out because there's different pieces and we can talk about them if it's of interest, Bob. Um, accuracy, efficiency, and discoverability. And accuracy and efficiency, I think of as in one bucket, which are how comprehensive can we be, how objective can we be, and how fast can we be. And on discoverability, that's more a function of how many filters can we give a reader and how much can we let a reader search over the body. The more we drive the result technologically, the more we can allow the corpus to be searchable. So if you think about those three things, that becomes very, very important as the body of law has grown in a very real way over the last few decades. Well, I think that, I mean, it's the first that accuracy is probably the first 
question that comes to the mind, I think, of a lot of lawyers hearing about something like this because, you know, a lot of us have come to trust human editors uh, and like the idea that they are making selections based on their understanding, well, you know, if they're qualified editors, uh, that they're making uh, selections based on their understanding of the topic. And whereas an algorithm is going to be operating off of, you know, uh, mathematical, I guess, factors more than anything, you know, frequency maybe of occurrence of certain kinds of terms or, or references or, or those kinds of things. Um, so, th- I mean, the questions that come to mind that I think a lot of lawyers would wonder is, and, I, and you've addressed this to some extent, but how do the accuracy of these compare to human editors and do you end up with over or under inclusiveness? And I guess what I'm hearing you saying is that you're applying filters to these to address that sort of over or under inclusiveness issue. So you're not getting necessarily uh, stuck with every reference to a particular statute in every case that was ever decided, but in some ways these are being filtered by the ones that are perhaps the most relevant or, or the strongest in their reference to that statute. So I don't know if that's a question or a comment, but I, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think, you know, I, I think what lawyers most want to understand about is, is how the accuracy of an algorithm compares to uh, the accuracy of a human. Sure. And I should credit our technologists here at, at Bloomberg for educating me on what accuracy means. Um, <laughs> Twenty years in the industry, and, and they actually had to break it down for me. So as we think about it with code, there are really two functions that impact accuracy. So, and by the way, I doubt that an average editor or manager could tell you this. They would think about it as, well, it's accurate. It, it gets it right, whatever that means. We think of it in two terms, um, recall and precision. So recall is the number of what we'll call extracts or the number of citations that belong in a particular category. Are they strong? Are they moderate? Are they weak? Do they really read on the statute or do they just reference it? Okay, so that's, did you get the bucket big enough? Did you, everything that belongs in a particular bucket, did you get it? Um, precision is, did you, within a given thing, set of extracts that you looked at, did you determine accurately which bucket it belonged in? Okay, those are traditionally the buckets we look at. The way we think about it is editors probably are quite good at precision, meaning assuming they're trained and assuming they've had their coffee in the morning. Um, and I, I say that facetiously, but we all have off days, right? You, you know, so our machines tend not to have off days. But assuming you know, they're, they're good editors, their ability to decide whether this case reads strongly on a statute or not probably pretty good. Their recall, their ability to look at all the relevant cases to see what needs to be captured and then to rank those is probably not very good. More importantly, it's also not measured. So if you go ask any organization that does this with humans, you can't measure that because you don't have it separated that way, right? You don't have the scripts to compare. We have it done algorithmically So we know our recall rate, we know our precision rate, we know how to tweak it against a control set, right? Now, interestingly, the control set is what human beings have done. This is, Bob, you know this, I've I've read your stuff on technology-assisted review. The seed sets are always human seed sets, so we're assuming that we got it right as human beings, but that's the best we have to work with with machine learning. We learn from people. 
But assuming that's right, we can tweak and we can constantly reteach the machine to get better and better at both recall and precision. What we look for is the interplay between those two and, and the people who write the scripts, again, credit to them, we'll call it the harmonic average of those two. And how do we keep improving that harmonic average? That's the game in smart code. What I can tell you is I don't think anyone doing this with human annotation has the ability to do this, let alone think about the problem in scientific terms. And if you look at what's going on in the rest of the industry, in technology-assisted review, in document review, in document assembly, in legal project management, it's all around this idea of taking scientific method and applying it to what were previously um, not bespoke methods, but editorial-driven methodologies. It's kind of funny because I, when I think of uh, back to the early days of, of Bloomberg Law, which wasn't all that long ago, it launched in 2009, but, and this was before you were uh, involved, but Bloomberg Law, I think, started out taking a very uh, heavy editorial, human editorial approach to uh, building out annotations uh, and content on the site. I, I know that when it first started, uh, it hired oh, a bunch of uh, legal editors and, uh, and was doing a lot of uh, human editing. I mean, does this... Does this development of smart code reflect something that's going on more broadly with Bloomberg Law? It definitely reflects a predisposition towards technology-driven solutions as opposed to human-driven solutions. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is being part of the Bloomberg family is learning from people who apply technology to data and information. The other Bob, is that necessity is the mother of invention. So if I look at the body of law, the corpus, right, it has grown enormously, yet in the face of that, consumers of legal products of all sorts, information, data, and tools being only one of them, have demanded that the cost of those products go down and that the usability and speed of use of those products go up. So in other words, they expect productivity gains and technology gains, just as we do in all industries, right? But the body of law going into the system is greater. So if I look at, I want to give you an example. If you look, at least for Bloomberg Law, if you look at the number of citation references in a given federal case, if we go back a quarter of a century to 1990, we now have almost three times as many citations per case as we did for cases in 1990, okay? So there are more sites to statute within cases than there were, and the number of cases has gone up enormously in that same time frame. So you've got this sort of compounding effect. If you look at the number of cases, I'm just looking at one particular database in federal where we've got 137,000 cases in 1990, that's the annual number of cases. In 2012, there were 437,000 cases, okay? That's not cumulative. Those are annual numbers. So in other words, we produce more case law by a factor of three than we did in 1990. And the number of references we make in those cases is up by a factor of three. So you can do the math. Right? It's going to take nine times as much effort to annotate into those cases 
yet people want it to be cheaper and they want it faster and they want it more discoverable. So technology is really the only way this is going to work unless, and I think this is what's challenging our competitors, and I've been at one of them for a number of years, unless you can charge your customers more year after year after year. Right? That's what this comes down to is if you can just keep charging more, you can keep using people to solve the problem, but our clients don't want to do that. Our clients want technology to be the solution and they want the efficiencies. So I think necessity demanded a tech solution to this and many other problems. That's really interesting. So when does smart code start appearing in Bloomberg Law? It's, it's there. Smart code is really just the new name for what used to be called case analysis. Um, so it's in there today and clients are using it. You'll probably see a lot more reference to it because since we've rebranded it, we're really talking about it more because we really felt that we were not highlighting internally the technological sophistication of the product. We spent a lot of time talking about our analytical solutions you know, that were being built, things like Draft Analyzer uh, or our judicial analytics products or representation analytics and another project we're working on, which figures out the legal principles of a case technologically. This has been on Bloomberg Law for quite some time. We just haven't really talked about it. And so we're really making an effort to internally educate everyone about it and to remind people that it's a fundamental part of the tech-driven solutions we offer our clients. David, we're getting, unfortunately, we've actually gone over our time, but that's okay. We've got a couple more minutes if you've got a couple more minutes. Um, but I'm going to lump a couple of questions together into, into a final question here because I, I wanted to ask you about Bloomberg Law, which, as I said, kind of launched in December 2009. And, and when it did, it the original goal, at least, was to position itself as a competitor to Westlaw and LexisNexis. And, you know, I'm wondering today whether that is still kind of a focus of Bloomberg Law, and if so, how it's doing at that. And then I'm going to kind of extend that question out into <laughs> not just where you are now and where you want to be, but where, where do you, what's the roadmap for the next five years? What are you, what are you looking to do uh, going forward from here? Sure. So it's a kind of a broad question. It is a very broad question. Sorry. We can break it down if you want. But As a business, it's growing very, very rapidly. Uh, our growth Achievements over the last two to three years are significantly in excess of the market, you know, so deep into the double digits in terms of growth, in terms of users, in terms of revenue and new sales. That continues unabated and frankly accelerating into this year. So we feel very good about that. We think the market is responding to it. Um, they're delighted by it. Uh, we think, you know, frankly, some of the players that are out there in, in the legacy market are, are unhappy about it and, and, are reacting to that and are feeling the pressure. So to that extent, we're aware we have these big competitors. We do not think about competing against the two companies you named. It's not a Bloomberg way of thinking about the world. What we think about is how do we solve the problem in a <laughs> do, way that- Do, do not say their better. names, David. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you avoid saying I'll their names. Totally it's not, it's not <laughs> we spend a lot of time talking about here. We spend, and incidentally, in terms of how our clients look at us, they'll often, you know, in a, in a world where their dollars are flat, right, the information budgets are traditionally flat, our growth is usually coming because someone's being displaced. As often as not, it's a niche player, it's a smaller information player, or it's a platform provider. And, you know, we don't really care one way or the other, as long as we are able to 
solve a problem for our client. As long as we believe in two, five, and 10 years, we're going to solve more problems for them than we do today. That's how we think about it. And that's how we think about the roadmap, which, which is really based on what I'll call three things. Um, the way we think about our, our product roadmap, which really informs, this is a product company. Mike Bloomberg deeply cares about the product. He will sit in a meeting with a keyboard. So this is very much a product place. So we do think about it in three areas. Um, one, what are the developing areas that need solving? So privacy and data security was an area that is on everyone's mind and, and uh, healthcare, right? The ACA I referenced, these are areas that there are gonna be massive problems, massive challenges. So those inform how we think about our product development. Secondly, where are we excellent at something or where can we be excellent? So we are excellent at labor and employment. We are excellent at tax. We've got a brand new tax product coming out next month. We've got a labor and employment product coming out later in the summer. Those are areas we're always going to be terrific at. Uh, But where else? So we went out and bought some code in the corporate transactional space a year and a half ago combined it with what some functions off the Bloomberg terminal because we're naturally excellent at merger and acquisitions data and capital markets data and built a suite on Bloomberg law that no one else in the market could have built. So it was, we knew we could be excellent in corporate transactional space. So that's our second area. And the third is really where we started, which is technology. Where can we leverage technology, you know, where we believe something is a growing area of increasing complexity or enforcement challenge or regulatory challenge, where we also believe we can be excellent, can we layer technology on top of that? We will look at that. Sometimes we'll look at tech first, but we will never do something unless we believe technology can be a significant part of that solution. So layer those those three things. Where's the market going in terms of a need? Where can we be terrific at solving it, and where can we use technology to be a lever for the solution? And that's our product roadmap. Those are the ways we think about it. Really interesting. I, I know uh, probably uh, a little bit after the show airs is going to be the uh, Law Librarians Convention. I'm sure you guys will be there. Uh, you want to give us a heads up on anything you're going to be announcing there, or uh, will we have to wait and see? No, I'll, I'll happily give you a heads up. So we will be um, showing our new Bloomberg Law Tax product. We'll be previewing our new Bloomberg Law labor and employment product. These are historical areas of strength. And we'll certainly be showing throughout all of our other analytic and user-driven things, things like our business development center, which Bloomberg's, I think, globally known for, but all the other analytic tools I mentioned that people have been asking for and the market is really seeking as a solution, you know, to use data in an analytic way, either for business development, you know, something like uh, representation analytics, or for actual practice, judicial analytics, patent analytics, draft analyzer, those are more practice tools. So we'll be showing all those uh, in addition to the two big product demos that we're going to do throughout the conference. Well, David, I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thanks for joining us. Bob, thanks for having me. Grateful as always, and I look forward to seeing you, I hope, in Chicago. Yeah, I won't be at Chicago. I'm maybe on vacation that week, but uh, <laughs> okay. I hope. Well, I'll see you soon then. Yeah, enjoy it. We've been talking with David Perla, president of Bloomberg BNA's legal division and of Bloomberg Law. This is Law Technology Now. I'm Bob Ambrogi for myself and my co-host of this program, Monica Bay. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. 
like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.